Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Today's guest hails to us from England. Mr. Edward Hutchinson's new book is Drawing for Landscape Architecture, Sketch to Screen to Sight, published by Thames and Hudson in 2019. Hi, Edward. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, Today, I just want to let our audience know that we are live from the American Society of Landscape Architects annual conference here in Orlando, Florida. It's our Florida chapter, and we are so excited to have you here. Well, it's extremely kind of you to ask me in the first place. Thank you. Um, So I always start with, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, when, when I left school, I, I wanted to be a fine artist, making constructions um, primarily out of wood, as I could not draw. Um, however, I decided it would be difficult to earn a living from being a fine artist, so I attended uh, art school for a long time. I studied interior design and then environmental design at the Royal College of Art in London. Um, Later, while I was in full-time employment working for the state, a local authority in in London, I qualified as a landscape architect uh, and later as an architect at the Architectural Association in Bedford Square. My first employment in the early 1970s was for a London borough, the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham. This, in the 1970s, was a period of great optimism <coughs> in the sense that a lot of land was becoming available in London as industry was moving out. This land became available for public housing. Um, and these are the basically the projects which I was involved in uh, uh, doing landscape for public housing. Uh, then I worked uh, in the early eight, 1980s, I worked for Norman Foster, when his uh, office in London was really small, less than 40 people. As I was the only landscape architect in the practice, I was fortunate enough to be given a lot of very interesting jobs and sent to places all over the world, which was extremely stimulating. In 1990, I established my own small landscape practice, employing only three people. But through the contacts that I had made, uh, we entered into architectural competitions with larger practices. We managed to win uh, quite a lot of these competitions. Uh, one of the reasons I like to think was because of my drawings, um, for of my competition drawings. Thank you. And so I'm going to start with the first question. What was your motivation for writing this book? Well, um, I suppose I'm slightly unusual, um, was slightly unusual for my age, because by the late, uh, my late 30s, unlike most people who went into management, I decided that that wasn't really my bag of tricks, and I continued to design. 
Um, but by the late 1980s, um, the earlier sort of method of, of uh, designing um, by, by hand, by on tracy paper, etc., had obviously become superseded by CAD. So though I was still designing, I was sort of out of step with everybody, well, not everybody else, but a lot of others who were designing on a computer, which I didn't feel at all comfortable with. And I sort of identified, in my view, the limitations of only using a computer to develop one's designs with. And I also thought that some of the fun had gone out of uh, drawing because drawing with a whole raft of different materials is, is great fun. And obviously, it's a different type of enjoyment with your, if you're working on a computer. Um, since I had this small practice of three, it was a situation of either feast or famine. So during the slightly more famous times, we set ourselves the project of making, making a book which would be appealing um, to designers. Uh, we, we basically did a mock-up of uh, 30 pages, this weaving a, a group of about six of my friends. There was a publisher, a graphic uh, designer, an educationalist, an archivist, etc., etc. So we had a sort of brainstorming session over a period of about three months, three or four months. And then the publisher, Thames and Hudson, came to my studio and decided that, yes, this was a book which Thames and Hudson would like to publish. So that was, that was our start. Oh, okay, that's interesting. So I, my first question is, and I think this is a common question, um, and, uh, and something that holds people back and kind of held me back. I learned to draw later in life, too, um, and then I really came to enjoy it. Why is it that you think we, that people say they don't think that they can draw? Well, yes. Um, I think most of us grew happily as young children, generally pretty unconcerned about the accuracy or indeed what, what the picture looks like. Um, but then as adults, we became, a lot of us became fearful of looking stupid by not being able to draw accurately um, and being sort of visually inarticulate. I suppose in my particular case, at art school, um, I experienced or worked with one or two brilliant draftsmen um, who really put us all to shame because they could draw with such skill that one felt pretty sort of nervous about uh, drawing oneself. However, like absolutely everything, uh, drawing needs practice. And if you practice and practice and practice and start to enjoy practicing, of course, like playing the piano, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you do get better. And it's interesting that uh, Henri Matisse, the painter, I mean, those wonderful line drawings which he did of, 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 of his models, he, this didn't come necessarily all that easy to him every day. He drew from two o'clock to half past four to hone his skills. Um, and in my particular case, about I couldn't draw, um, but I wanted to go to the Royal College of Art. But my portfolio um, to get into the Royal College of Art didn't have any um, drawings. So I set myself the task of um, <clears throat> improving my portfolio by having drawings. And I went to, in London, the Science Museum and selected something to draw, which was basically an engine. It was an aero engine designed in 1912, um, and it was a supercharger for a little uh, aeroplane. 
And why it was interesting that it was at the one of these cut-throughs through an engine, there were two cylinders which revolved around each other, um, which revolved next to each other, um, <coughs> which made the supercharger work. Um, and I studied, and I drew this engine for 12 weeks, seven hours. So it was, an, <laughs> it was a rather uh, intense experience. And after a little while, I became really absorbed into the, the geometry of this, uh, of, of this engine, this motor. And I got, became involved um, into the relationship of two circles moving around at the same rate. I then made a flick book um, showing this circular movement, which I then presented to the professors at the Royal College of Art, who accepted me as a student because I think they were uh, intrigued by my sense of curiosity, albeit into something very, very, very obscure. But my reward, and this was really my first serious drawing experience, but my reward made later um, when Buckminster Fuller came to London, in, and this would be, gosh, uh, late 60s, and he gave a lecture um, in, in a large hall, Methodist Hall in London. And he too had just um, discovered or got involved in exactly the same uh, concept of the movement of two circles, the relationship of two circles. And he asked this audience of 4,000 people whether anybody was familiar with this concept. And only two other people put up their hand in the audience. So I then realized at that moment that drawing revealed things to yourself, which you could discover, which other people didn't necessarily find. And it was a sort of a seminal moment for me. Thank you. Yes, it's true. And, you know, um, and with drawing, it's just a matter, um, I think, too, of just, just telling yourself, I can do it. And... Um, uh, I just started doing it, and it was interesting because even my mom, my mom's obviously older than me, I said, Mom, you know, you can draw. And she's like, so? And I said, yeah. And she went and took a drawing class, and boy, what she came back with, I was in shock. I was like, wow, Mom, um, that's pretty awesome. Um, <laughs> and she just put she, she just yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think that... I mean, I think drawing, drawing to me is, you know, of course, it's making marks, but actually it's, it's the passion and interest and the excitement and, and the meditation which you have in the process. Therefore, so basically, I think anybody who's got a curiosity, anybody who's got passion um, can, can, can basically draw. Um, and there was an interesting uh, exhibition in the Royal Academy in London about eight years ago of various people's drawings. One was a heart surgeon who drew with blood <laughs> describing his, his, his surgery. And it was just a means of communication. You know, he didn't consider himself a draftsman, but he just wanted to communicate to his team you know, what to do with somebody's heart. And the easiest um, uh, medium to use was, was, was blood. So, so but basically, I agree with you. I, th I think anybody can draw. In fact, Ruskin was... Uh, you can quote Raskin, but he said that he could teach anybody to draw um, in, in a matter of 12 hours. And it, it's just an attitude. Yeah, it really is. So um, now moving on from that kind of same thing, you know, what is the uh, thought press process that you get from drawing a scene? And do you think that this can be done with a computer yet or, you know, with our pen tablets? Or do you think that, you know, that 
you know, writing and paper, um, does that make a difference? What do we gain from drawing? Mm. Well, probably or it could be done with a tablet, but certainly not by me. But I think somebody who is extremely adept uh, at drawing on a tablet, like, for example, uh, the English painter David Hockney, I, I think that may well be possible. For me, it's a matter of immersing yourself uh, in a landscape. Um, and, and basically, if it's an unfamiliar landscape, um, this immersion will, will force you into an unfamiliar situation and possibly encourage you to think about slightly unfamiliar concepts. Um, and so that as one is drawing, you're then thinking about things which you wouldn't necessarily consider beforehand. For example, in really hot countries, there are details of planting that create a very fine uh, uh, microclimate uh, may become something which you get completely absorbed by. I, I, I was sitting um, in the Canary Islands underneath a Californian pepper tree, um, and I was writing my daughter's um, speech for her wedding, um, and it was incredibly hot. And I sat underneath this uh, Californian pepper tree, I noticed that other insects and birds were also under this particular tree because the um, the leaves were so incredibly fine that they picked up the, the most minute ripple of, of uh, breeze. And I wouldn't have re- recognised this sort of fine piece of microclimate if I hadn't really been drawing. Um, so that's sort of in, in unfamiliar situations. And then in, in a more familiar landscape, of course, you can... Um, it may be an expression of love if you know a place really, really well. Maybe you want to, to, to draw it or paint it because you like it so much. And these these drawings may, in fact, become a reflection of you just as much as, as the landscape itself. Um, and I think that the, the most... I think the, the, the difference between drawing and, and photograph, maybe, is that a drawing can actually often capture the spirit, the essence of the scene much better than, than a photograph in the sense that your emotional involvement with, with that scene um, you can express in a way that can be, as it were, inaccurate in some terms, but emotionally very, very, very personal. Yeah, and I think that your book really captures that, you know, about um, drawings. Your drawings are, um, you know, some very simple and then very complex and um, and the time that you sit and spend um, just doing an analysis of um, existing conditions, and then I guess probably what you're thinking about uh, doing for this space. Mm. Well, yes, and so that so I think that um, the drawing on the site when you actually have a project, I think that this this is really just time. Um, and I'm a huge, and I'm a huge believer. And certainly, when I worked in Foster's office, it was sort of not the, the usual thing of spending much more time on site than other people, and less time, as it were, designing. Well, maybe less time designing afterwards, because I think it's, in my opinion, the expression "thank you for your time" is is relatively new because. Time now is such a sort of precious commodity for everybody since we leave such busy lives. So I, I feel in a way that the time spent on a site drawing, the site 
I believe it's all sites have their own personality. I think the site would thank you for that commitment to that particular site, for spending time drawing there and 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 really trying to understand what what makes this, the, the 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 site have its own particular quality. Uh, when you sit, when you sit, of course, you you could smell the site. You watch people, animals. You see the spaces. Um, use and gradually, I think you build up a feeling for that site. Um, and and sitting in a site, you will that people will come will often come up and talk to you. Sometimes that can be terrific. Other times it can be very much a mixed blessing. Especially, I've been <laughs> had difficult times with young children who who think you're fair game for sitting on the ground in front of. That a site, especially if it's outside their school, for example. But adults um, often come and tell you priceless pieces of information about the site, the history of the site, which they, um, you know, that, that which they've experienced or their family have experienced, which you would never ever get from any other media. I mean, you wouldn't get it from the library, and you wouldn't get it from books. But if you're prepared to spend the time on a site, I think the site. Responds to you in no uncertain terms. Um, the I think that um, I, I think that this, this the time which you spend on the site affects all the design decisions. Will be influenced by your your sensibility and maybe even your emotional understanding of this site. And I certainly found in um, working on interdisciplinary competitions that as a landscape architect, certainly in the very early stages of a competition, you can speak with great authority about a range of matters regarding the site because you will you have a much stronger personal understanding than others who maybe probably won't have spent you know two, three, four or longer on the site just sort of absorbing it. And I think that this, for landscape architects, um, I think this can be invaluable because it basically demonstrates your your importance in the team and also on a commercial uh, level, sort of can justify your, your fees as well. Thank you. Yes, and you know, um, speaking to that and, and the site and what it reveals to you, um, recently um, I went back and took a color theory class and I just loved it. And I felt like I really, I'm really starting to understand and see color. And I, I, I'm going to tell the audience, um, on it's page 16, uh, so they can look it up. Um, can you say, can you tell us how is color important to a designer and how do you find the color um, in your drawings on site? Well, I, I think that color is a very emotional uh well, obviously, color is a very emotional thing, and and I personally um, find using color when I'm doing site drawings really exciting. Not necessarily to use realistic colors, um, because if, for example, you're in a I did some work in India, and if you're in a very hot country. My, my tendency was to use very hot colours, sort of purples and pinks and reds, to draw, to, to draw the trees, just because I, I just felt like it. And although that may sound slightly willful, well, it is willful, but it's also extremely uh, successful in the sense that you are shaking up 
a sort of familiar way of looking at, it, uh, looking at things. And also that if these drawings are information to yourself, but also to be used later to explain your thoughts to a client or to a team, um, if you show a client or team endless green drawings, it, it can be slightly soporific. However, if, if a client sees you know, a whole forest of, of reds and oranges um, drawn as trees, they are possibly more curious about what on earth you're going to talk about, these orange and, and, and purple trees. And therefore, I, th I find it's a, a better way to, to, to capture your audience. But also, um, I do a lot of painting, um, fine art painting, watercolour, and, and it is remarkable that if you look and look and look and look, you can find colours, complementary colours, of course, often, um, in, 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 in landscapes, which otherwise you wouldn't or certainly wouldn't be picked up with, with a camera. I mean, for example, in England, um, the early days of spring, sort of April, <clears throat> you, you do get these wonderful qualities of light in, 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 in woods because the leaves haven't come onto the trees, come onto the trees. So the sunlight penetrates the wood. And the tiny leaves, they're just unfurling, and of course they're sort of pinky um, brown, or yeah, uh, before they have chlorophyll. And so you get these wonderful, extraordinary colours, which last maybe for a day or two. And I think that, that drawing these rather sort of fleeting colour experiences is, is very exciting. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, even learning to draw and now this color class, I think that um, my first career was a professional photographer. Um, but um, I did it for a long time. I was very successful. But I felt like learning to draw and that really took my even photography to a whole nother level. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I started teaching people to slow down. I think that was an important thing about, you know, drawing teaches really slow, slow down even more than I was trying to do with photography. Well, that's right. In, in, in England, the BBC, they have slow radio every, I think it's every other day. They have a recording of something very, very slow, like a sort of a, a Victorian water wheel, and the, the sound of a Victorian water wheel. And I think you're right. I think that the, the, I think there is a, there's a temptation for everything to get faster and faster and faster. Um, but I think that one loses much by, by this speed, and I think the, the enjoyment of slow drawing or slow radio or slow cooking or whatever maybe is something which maybe will become more and more appreciated. I, I can see in 20 years' time it being not for cranks, but something which is essential for one's well-being. Do you think that it is uh, essential for a designer to um, think that go slow? Because I was thinking... It's, it's, I can't do details fast, but I really enjoy going slow and really working into detail. Maybe um, a designer should really just focus on um, slow and really, uh, my next question is, you know, drawings to sight. How do you start? Yeah, no, I, I'm sure you're right. I think there is, there's become this extraordinary work ethic, which I think is, is well, I, I think it's wrong, frankly, is if you're sitting in an office in front of your computer, making marks, you're working, where you're being productive. Whereas if you are 
doing other things like outside or sketching, etc. You're just having fun. And I think that if so much time is wasted by producing far too many drawings um, because you, well, people haven't slowed down. Uh, you know, it's remarkable when you consider what was built in America, exactly in the UK, in, in England, Britain, um, sort of two centuries ago, the sort of paucity of drawings, um, you know, there were very few drawings which were created to, to make landscapes, but um, they were very carefully considered. And of course, I mean, admittedly, the whole sort of um, project procurement system is different. But putting all that aside, I think, I'm sure we produce far too many drawings and uh, unnecessarily so. Um, so let me ask you, what is your favorite medium? What, what do you like to work with on site? Uh, pencil, watercolor, paint, uh, photos, a little bit of everything? Kind of, how, how do you do it? How do you go out and analyze a site? I think it's really, so the best way, well, there's various ways of various one, one way, I think, is to walk around the site uh, maybe once or twice, sort of trying to build up a head of steam to, to actually understand um, one of the most important points and then basically uh, selecting a vantage point and then drawing the points which you want to make from that vantage point the next vantage point or the, or the following vantage point or uh, of course the other way of doing is just sort of jumping in and starting drawing um, and for the site to as it were explain itself to you for you to understand the site as as you progress the drawing, um, and I suppose it becomes quite important what means or it can become quite important what means you choose to do that. Um, I mean, so for, for example, when I was working in Nîmes, I've just used a felt tip pen, a pencil felt tip pen, um, a new one with a nice sharp point. Those, those are good because basically you can lick them and they smudge in a, in a rather delightful way. And maybe one can use, and so that was an urban situation, and I suppose the pen sort of is quite suitable for, for that uh, for that context. I, the first of all, talking about paper, I sketchbooks in, in the, the nicest sketchbooks, paper to draw on. I'm pleased to say American, which you get from Dear Beacon, which I get from Dear Beacon, because it's very, very smooth paper, 110 gram, and it's not A4, it's uh, slightly smaller than A4, but they are delightful books because they're very robust, and you can work on both sides of the paper without it sort of bleeding through, and it's something which I carry around really all, uh, all the time. In terms of the media, I suppose my favourite of all is the German Faber-Castell colour pencil. Um, these are, they're really good because the, um, sorry, the leads don't break. The colours are extremely strong. And then this, the shaft of the pencil is sort of slightly triangular. So you're tempted to, to twist it round um, because it's a very sort of sexual experience. Um, and when twisting it round, of course, you sharpen the, the point at the end. Um, these these are great, and you can get them either water soluble or not. So that if you're feeling brave, you can lick and smudge, smudge these. Um, otherwise, I tend to use a B pencil with a very sharp knife, or um, what is really um, 
exciting. It's one of these very, very thick 8B jumbo pencils from, again, from Faber Castell, because they are wonderful. It's stopping you from being fiddly, that you have to be sort of bold and strong in what you're doing, because it's quite impossible to, to be too dainty with them. Um, and I, these also are very good for designing details, because, because they're so thick. It means that you're, you're the detail, you have to draw the detail quite a big scale, but it means you can't be sort of fiddly. Um, you have to you have to draw as I feel sort of Victorian or in the 19th century engineers might, might have drawn. And then if you're very lucky, you can find beautiful handmade pencils. I found some handmade pencils which uh, were made in Florence. And these are extraordinary. Um, their lead is a sort of mixture between HBF um, and um, H. And they have a sort of unique quality. Um, they're very expensive. Well, they cost two pounds each. Um, but they are, they are they're wonderful. And, um, yeah. But, um, but actually, interesting, as it happens, tomorrow, um, I'm going to the John F. Kennedy Memorial at Runnymede, which was designed by Jeffrey Jellicoe, to do some site drawings there for a, uh, somebody who was producing a book. Um, on the subject of, of Kennedy's memorial. Um, and I was thinking what media to use for this. And because, obviously, culturally, um, the Kennedy memorial is so significant, and Jeffrey Jellicoe was a very cerebral um, landscape architect, I thought that of all the media, maybe watercolour, um, sort of semi-abstract watercolours, might be the most ethereal uh, way to portray what um, the great man and Jeffrey Jellicoe were, were about. So I'm going armed with, with watercolours um, to see whether I can't, with some hint and suggest in a slightly abstract way, the best qualities of, of the space. Because there is this which is, you may know, from, it's a sort of pilgrimage, um, which is a route from the sort of water meadows, excuse <coughs> me, through the wood to, to the Great Stone itself. Oh, well, you know, I really want to get to this question. I like to, uh, this next one, and it kind of goes along with, um, uh, you're talking about with what to draw on site, how to draw. It's on page 64, it's your seaside competition drawing. I mean, it, I even stopped when I flipped to that page because it's so bold, um, but it's very simple. Um, and, you know, a lot of the competition drawings anymore, at least over here in the U.S., you know, it's very elaborate, very digital. Um, and this one won. And I do love the bold lines in the green. Um, could you talk more about this project and, and why did it win? Well, <laughs> sadly, it didn't win. <laughs> um, um, yeah, we, we were complimented. The, the landscape won. Well, we were complimented to the judges about the landscape, but the, it was an architectural competition for a new swimming pool. And um, sadly, we didn't win, but we, we won their hearts. Um, <laughs> Worthing is on the south coast, and it's a slightly decayed Victorian seaside spa town, which was very fashionable in the, 1980, uh, in the 1880s. Uh, noted for its healthy ozone-laden air and wonderful sunlight. But the, the sea is virtually inaccessible because the, the beach is so pebbly that it's, it's really hellish to walk across um, to get to the beach. Um, and 
So what I really enjoyed was, was going to Worthing by train. And, you know, if you go to the seaside, you sort of more or less all, as a child, you go back into childish mode and it's the seaside and the holiday. And I really enjoyed just sitting on this very, very pebbly beach, sort of drawing the scale and drawing the colours of, of the pebbles and the sort of the pebbliness of the pebbles and, of course, the, um, the, the milky light, etc. And I suppose... Yeah, and, it, and I suppose one was, I was affected deeply by the sense of well-being, really. I mean, the re- reason why the Victorians went to the spa town, it made them feel good. And um, although I was only there for, I don't know, six hours or so, it, worked, and it was a nice day. I did feel really good drawing. And I suppose that sort of sense, sorry, sense of, uh, of well-being presumably came over with the selection of colours which I had chosen. Um, and then the, the very bold um, little drawings were, were just instant ideas, which I had, which I put straight into my dear Beacon sketchbook, um, and and then they were reproduced for the book. But what was interesting was that yes, I agree with you entirely about competition drawings, and um, uh, I was working with very good architects, but their their submission was quite. Uh, dry in the sense that they were bad drawings, but my drawings were the ones which were in the book. And it, and the the judges who all lived in the town really really responded to to these drawings because they could they could see that I had identified with the spirit of the town and that and that they could uh, they they could respond to my in, intuitive response. Yeah, because and I guess that um, comes down to, you know, maybe even like using the right tools for the right place and how it all like comes together. Yeah. Um, yes, I think a lot of it is, is, is intuitive, intuitive. I think a diff, different situation. I mean, there's a practical aspect to it. I mean, it's quite tricky doing watercolors um, quickly. I mean, not, not impossible, but it's quite tricky. Uh, yeah. Um, and in, in an issue where you're going to sit, I always sit down. I've got a wonderful American, you can't get them in this country, wonderful American mountain seat, you know, these canvas ones, which just open up and you can sit on the ground. Um, I take that everywhere and sit on the ground, and therefore you can lay out your, your sort of studio, as it were, on a, on a, on a rug around about you. Um, but obviously, if you haven't got time to do that, you probably have to stand up, and, and therefore, um, maybe. You, you reduce the amount of uh, materials that you use just to a, a pencil and rubber, maybe. Well, just, well I'm going to go, can, can at least, my questions I'll kind of leave the book, I'll tell the audience, I'm going kind of a different pages, I'll, I'll reference it for them, for them to, to come back to your book. Um, and on page 84, um, you're talking about tracing paper in your process. So do you color on both sides, pencil or marker? How do you do it? Well, I suppose actually getting tracing, buying trace paper in England is getting more and more difficult because fewer and fewer people use it. Um, I love tracing paper. Um, I, I get quite thick paper, 120 gram. Um, I, I, I generally have an A3 size. I use this because it's pretty robust. And yes, as you say, you can color it on, on both sides. Um, and the thicker the paper takes a lot of scratching out and, uh, and uh, abuse. Um, and curiously, 
for this digital age, I become very fond of a piece of tracing paper because you may develop a detail um, design on, on, on a piece of tracing paper, which may well take uh, several weeks, or even conceivably a month, on this one piece of paper. And you bring it out and dust it down and then scratch out what you've made and, and, uh, and put marks on the back. And the, and the piece of paper, the piece of tracing paper, sort of takes on a, a life of its, own, of its own, which might sound slightly obscure. But I, I did have the, the, uh, the honour, I suppose, of uh, holding a piece of paper which uh, Christopher Wayne had uh, done a drawing on for a palace in, in London. And, and I did get this extraordinary sensation of this sort of electric connection back to Christopher Wren and the sort of 1690s or so when he, when he did this uh, drawing through the paper. So I know it may sound rather obscure, but I do think that the paper does have a certain energy of its own, own, uh, in, in its own. On sites, um, I, I use tracing paper a lot. I have a, an A3 piece of plywood, and onto that plywood I would put a, a, a plan of, of a particular site, and then that plan will put the tracing paper. And then the tracing paper becomes the, of course, then I then make all my notes and little sketches of the, the, the particular site, but there's a, a cross-reference to an accuracy uh, of the plan, obviously, un, underneath it. But then when you strip way one the, the tracing paper from the the plan underneath the tracing paper suddenly has its own um has its own sort of character and, and dare one say a little bit of magic and and I, i'm again making sort of presentations or describing your views about some of these sites i found that these are have a really powerful because um, an owner of a site, site or, or a client, if he sees or she sees that you've been to the site, your piece of tracer paper has got thoroughly wet and crumpled through the rain, there is, there's a certain sort of connectivity that, that the client can make to you through your efforts on, on the drawing. And then I, I've also used tracing paper um, with, with CAD drawings of, of we did a scheme for an art gallery in Woking where the land uh, to, to, <coughs> to, to, to portray the, the landscape in a rich way the, 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 the building was printed onto tracing paper but then the, all the landscape was drawn by hand um, on the back and then on the front um, and then obviously printed or, or scanned and th this drawing had a certain, well, I, I think, a rather beautiful quality because it was using, as it were, the best of both worlds. It was using the, the super accuracy of the computer with the, um, with the liveliness uh, and emotional quality of, of the hand drawing. Oh, yeah, you know, and I do, I, um, like I said, I came from photography and then um, I was learning about tracing paper and it's, um, yeah, all the different types of parchments and stuff. I don't know, I kind of always liked fine paper anyway, and it's, it's just kind of fun to work with. And Milo, the American Milo paper is wonderful. Um, the, uh, you know, that very sort of, it's that plastic paper. That, that is, that is terrific um, in terms of uh, coloring on the front and the back. And you can get 
the most wonderful qualities using color pencils on. I said that's the tracing of on Milo because, for example, if, if on the front you 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 color it red and the back you color it yellow, um, you do get these wonderful luminescent um, colors um, similar to watercolor. Well, do you, you know, you know, in my painting class, um, it was interesting because she would talk about color and vibration and um, how she taught us how to do a color palette was we put a gray piece of paper um, under our painting palette and, and we did color. And she goes, now look at this and look at that. And it was like, wow, the vibrations of the color. Does the color vibrate off this tracing paper? Do you feel like, does it help your clients? Does it help you in your design? Oh, I, I, I think so. I think so. And, um, and I think that, y y yes, and I, I have a difficulty with, <laughs> with CMYK colours um, because, well, I, I think it helps enormously that if you have colour pencils, etc., you can, the nuances which you can express with colour are... Uh, I mean, I was lucky enough to have this job designing the British um, Embassy Gardens in, in Damascus. Um, and I did all these on site in, in coloured pencils, actually in my Dear Beacon book. I then presented those to the British ambassador um, in Damascus in, in the evening. And they were in colour and um, they were done, you know, pretty quickly. I mean, some of them took 10 minutes uh, and the fact that they were in colour and he was in sort of quite a good mood, it, 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 was, uh, it was pretty easy to convince him um, that, you know, I sort of knew what I was doing. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's a good point, that you, you really knew how to design and and, uh, and what you were doing. Yeah, I love that your book is just like, it's, for the audience, it's really, it's just beautiful. I mean, uh, the whole thing, the whole book is just absolutely stunning. Yeah, very nice. Um, well, I'm going to jump to a different little question here. Now, I'm going to maybe sell a devil's advocate, but you know what? I, I think that even construction documents can be beautiful. And I've kind of wondered to myself why, you know, like inexperienced people kind of tasked with this. And But I think fine detailing in the construction, fine, beautiful black and white line work really can, can it can be beautiful. Do you think it can? No, most definitely. Well, I, I've been thinking about your, your question. Um, in the 19, it's only in the UK, and no doubt it's the same in the States. In the 1950s and the 60s, most detailed construction drawings were done by technicians, experienced technicians, um, who knew exactly how to put bits of wood and stone together. But then as technology changed and certainly concrete, uh, yeah, new materials came in um, and sort of neoprene gaskets and all sort of high tech. I think that was right. The, the, the influence of high tech in the UK really sort of put a nail to experienced technicians. They felt uncomfortable using these new materials because they didn't know how they would perform. And so the jobs then, instead of being done by experienced technicians, then, curiously, as you say, went to the most junior members of, of the staff, um, which is really weird, um, who, in fact, I went to a lecture the other day uh, about the building of the Centre Pompidou in, in Paris, 
and the architects were there who were working on these, you know, the details of the Centre Pompidou of Richard Cannon uh, Rogers. And it was extraordinary. I mean, they said they, you know, they were making it up as they, they went along because there was, there was no precedent for that. And, and I think what's happened, which is really weird, is that the, very few people have technicians any longer. Uh, the, the detailing tends to be done by the junior members of staff. And, and the, the, and the love and care which details really deserve are no longer yeah, uh, the experience is no longer given to them. And I, I particularly love working out details because, as you imply, it's, it's the sort of it's it's, it's the essence. It's, it's the essence of a design. Um, and and certainly, all my details are tend to well, either working out in color in in a book initially, or on sheets of, of A3 tracing paper. Um, and I and I really like to explore how you can portray the, the, the sort of quality of steel wool, stone, etc. graphically, um, so that it sort of you get the feeling of the stone or you get the feeling of a of a wall belt, the feeling of this of element in the next. So that the the detail has its personality. Um, and I suddenly found that that showing these detailed construction drawings to craftsmen or people who have got to make, make the things, they they tend to respond hugely to hand-drawn details of that ilk because they realise, you know, that how difficult it is to get everything to work perfectly. You know, it's virtually impossible to get things to be perfect. You can, you can get it nearly perfect, but not totally. And because... And in a way, your, your, your hand drawings, details, reflect, reflect a certain reality. And, and I suppose the other thing which I enjoy with, with detailing um, is to transfer the scale so that you one become slightly zen in, in your attitude towards the drawing. Zen in the sense that if one's doing uh, paving or drainage, I, I imagine what it's like to be a... A, a drop of water, I and mean, where would I go in this sort of drainage scheme, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And I find that that's immensely helpful in terms of um, working out the sort of finer aspects of, of, of detailing. Well, let me ask you: What is your favorite project uh, in this book, and why? I, I suppose probably it was working in the south of France in the Roman town of of Nîmes. Um, really sort of because culturally this was pretty significant. Um, I don't know if you've been to France, but um, Nîmes is sort of uh, uh, west of Marseille, and it was on the sort of edge of the Greek empire. Uh, and then when the Greeks shrank, um, empire shrank, and the Romans took it over, it was, it was um, <coughs> extremely significant. And... Um, my involvement there was was Norman Foster won this international competition for a new um, media tech. It was a sort of library and uh, art gallery uh, on a site which was uh, had been an old theatre, which which uh, Victorian nineteenth uh, century <coughs> theatre, which was burnt down. But opposite it was this Roman temple, the Maison Carré, 
And the Mason Carey is highly, highly significant because there's only two Roman temples in um, the whole of the Mediterranean which survives. Um, and um, this Mason Carey was originally part of the forum, um, of the main forum for the town. So you had this temple, and then round it was this very, very big colonnade, um, which basically framed the temple. And the temple was not something, it, it wasn't really like a church. You didn't go in it and, and say your prayers. It was something which you sacrificed sheep or goats or whatever on the steps outside. And most importantly, it was the, the forum for, for the town. And you walked around this <coughs> peristyle in the shade uh, around the temple. And it built... Um, in the sorry, with, with the revival of the classical architecture, this became a sort of seminal building. And even and Thomas Jefferson, when he was uh, ambassador in France, um, he had a uh, a model made of Maison Carré in 1785, and then he modelled the Virginia State Capitol on, on the Maison Carré. So, um, so basically being given the job of designing the space between the Foster New Media Tech and the Roman Empire's uh, temple was a wonderful challenge to produce uh, a modern landscape which had the sensitivity and sensibility to um, fuse the very new with with the very old. and I was pleased that it, it was a success. And at the end of the, the project, the architect Richard Rogers said to me, he thought that the landscape, which I designed, was actually better than, 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 than the building. So I felt that was a nice compliment. But what, what, what was really significant, and it goes very back to the importance of drawing, was that when I, when, when I was doing these sort of site drawing, site analysis, I spent about a week in uh, Nîmes drawing, drawing the streets and trying to understand the context of this temple and the fact that the peristyle, this great big colonnade, which was enormous, which was, uh, uh, had been demolished. And um, I was trying to understand it, and I did all these drawings, etc., etc. Um, and then the French uh, archaeologist um, showed me a... Uh, a drawing which had been prepared in the 19th century of what the the, the Maison Carré looked like originally. And for some reason, um, Tricia, I, I didn't believe it. And I said, I don't believe that that is right. And it was just a gut feeling which I'd got from doing all these drawings on the site. And I, and I said to Norman Foster that I didn't believe this drawing. Was, was true. And he, Norman Foster, told the mayor of Nîmes that, that Edward didn't believe the, um, the archaeological assessment by the French in the 19th century. And the mayor of Nîmes managed to convince the, the state, French government, to um, excavate the whole of the area around about the Maison uh, Carré just to see you know, what, whether this French uh, plan was, was correct or not. Unfortunately, for my career, I was proved to be right that, in fact, that what they had assumed to be the case wasn't at all. Um, and it was, it was a, an extraordinary thing that uh, 
and I think this is the importance of the landscape art of drawing, that one can actually understand a site really in a sort of animal sense if you spend time drawing it. And what they had discovered here in, in Nîmes, there were all sorts of things, but number, the, the most important thing was that it wasn't dedicated to Augustus's cousins, as, uh, or nephews, sorry, as it had always been assumed, um, but to Hadrian, um, um, Hadrian's wife, somebody called Pompeii Plotina. And the significance of that was Hadrian, when he, he was in um, England, um, but his wife came from Nîmes, and she was basically the principal lady of the Roman Empire, so that this temple was, was dedicated to her. It was actually dedicated <laughs> over 50 years later than all the books had consumed. And so that was exciting. And then there were all sorts of details about the proportions, which I did not even got time to, to, to go into. What I felt really was that the name is incredibly hot. I mean, intolerable. Last week, it was 45 degrees centigrade, which we call Europe, is, is intolerable. And it always has been hot. So this peristyle, this colonnade, which went all the way around the, the temple, was really, really important for people to walk in the shade, um, going around the temple, discussing the states, uh, whatever they wanted to discuss. But they couldn't, it wasn't the colonnade didn't go all the way around the, the temple as the original drawing produced by the, um, the, the French in the 19th century, which I didn't believe, because uh, on one side there was a road going over the market, and the market refused to, well, they, they couldn't move the road, so that basically there was just a blank end. So instead of being able to walk around the, um, the temple in the shade, you could only just walk one on one side, and then there was a sort of blank end, and then you could either cross it in the sunlight and come back again, or or, or just return your footsteps. So the significance of this is that these excavations were done in the 1980s, and still American universities are analysing um, the, the, the dig. And of course, I don't get, I wouldn't expect any credit for this, but it's really nice to see that drawing on site has actually thrown up something for generations in future to, to consider. Wow. That is, yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, you know, uh, Edward, I want to thank you so much for being here today. It's been a, an honor and a pleasure uh, to have this time to ask you these questions. Um, and I know we've taken up a lot of your time. I, can you tell our audience, what are you working on now? Oh, <laughs> well, at the moment, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm painting. I'm painting a lot. I'm painting in watercolor. And I'm trying to um, explain the importance of soil and looking after the soil and looking after and the consequence of, of that and with wildfires. In large um, watercolors, which are sort of three foot by three foot, and they are sort of semi-abstract. We went, I went to Greece um, about two months ago and was absolutely astounded by the wildflowers in the Mani Peninsula, really um, because the soil hadn't, hadn't been polluted by fertilizers and 
pesticides, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one realizes that you know how, how much damage has been caused through agriculture to the soil. And I feel as a landscape architect at this stage of my career um, to be able to draw attention to this fact by making large, albeit hopefully beautiful, uh, watercolors is, is a continuation of my interest in landscape. Oh, wow. Well, I'm getting ready to, I'm going to go break out some paints and some, some my drawing right here at the conference. I'm going to go out and do some drawing. I'm going to figure out, figure out the site. Um, <laughs> where am I at? Um, well, again, I'd like to, uh, to tell our audience, this has been Edward Hutchinson's new book, Drawing for Landscape Architecture, Sketch to Screen to Sight, published by Thames and Hudson in 2019. And this has been Tricia Keffer. I am the Emerging Professionals Chair this year for the American Society of Landscape Architects. And for our audience, if you have any suggestions for books, please visit our website at the Florida Chapter and drop me a line. And thank you so much. Thank you very much, Nee. Thank you for listening to New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. If you have any ideas for books, please contact me through the Florida chapter of the American Society of Landscape Architects and drop me an email. Thank you for listening.